You're listening to HSBC Talks Business. Learn how businesses like yours are leveraging a wide range of banking solutions to maximize their success and how HSBC is helping them. Listeners should note that this episode has been recorded remotely. Therefore, the sound quality may vary. Thank you for listening. Welcome to Inspiring Progressive Business, a podcast series for SMEs. Join us for insights from inspirational business leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts on key topics of importance to your business. Welcome to today's session as part of Drive 2021 for a spotlight on the UAE economy. Thanks, Miles, and and hello, everyone. So this today's webinar is about the rules, investments, and business opportunities in the UAE that are new uh, and should make for a very exciting set of opportunities. You'll hear from experts who will take you through the macro dynamics of the UAE, the rising business opportunities in the market, and we'll hopefully be able to discuss solutions with you about how we can provide support for your business growth. As Simon Williams, who's our chief economist of the Central Eastern Europe and the Middle East and Africa at HSBC, who will give his house views on the UAE macro outlook. So, Simon, over to you. Good afternoon, uh, as Dan says. My name is Simon Williams. I'm aware that for many of you, the UAE um, is not a familiar market. It's a relatively new economy um, to you. So I wanted to begin just by giving you some broad observations um, that can perhaps give you a framework um, for thinking about the kind of economy that the UAE uh, represents. It's a unique uh, political structure that brings together seven very distinct, very separate um, emirates into a single confederation, hence that name, the United Arab Emirates. Um, those seven emirates are, are quite distinct. They all retain um, their unique characters, um, but it's a federation dominated by the two big players, Abu Dhabi, uh, which is the owner um, of the UAE's oil wealth and that continues um, to own the bulk of the foreign assets that it holds, and the second emirate, Dubai, um, which is the driver of the region of of the UAE's non-oil economic um, activity. I think what's important to to recognize is also the nature of the transformation um, that the UAE has gone through um, over the last 20, 20 years or so, the extent to which it's come of age. Over the last 20 years, well, really a remarkable shift, um, remarkable transformation in the scale and nature of that economy. It was a $50 billion economy, is now a $400 billion economy. So a strong economic structure, a remarkable cycle of transformation. And when I put the UAE against its peers, I think it makes the UAE a really quite compelling proposition. So to get a bit closer um, to, to hand, in terms of where we are in the cycle, well, last year was tough. Um, The UAE got hit by the double whammy um, of COVID um, and the restrictions on activities that came with it, but also the big drop in oil prices um, that was associated with the sharp fall off in global economic activity. We're moving out um, of of that cycle. Activity pretty much across the board has got us back to, or in some cases above, the kind of levels that there were before the pandemic uh, hit. I still think that there is upside to come um, with that recovery in domestic demand. I have seen a pickup in demand for consumption of, of goods, across most of the UAE, but the service sector is domestically still only really coming back to life. And I think that means the UAE is very well placed to catch even the early tailwinds um, of that normalization of external 
services uh, demand. The other thing which has happened um, over the last six to nine months has been support um, from the recovery in international um, oil prices. But I think what really marks the, the UAE out is that it's not just an oil story. In fact, the UAE is the only economy um, in, the, in the GCC region, in the Gulf region, where energy exports make up less than half um, of its overall export base. In fact, that percentage would be lower still um, if I were to include service exports in there um, as well. So by way of conclusion, um, by way of a, of a summary, a success in dealing with COVID to pick up in the, in the oil price, to me, um, sets the UE fair um, for, the, for, for that near-term recovery in domestic demand and well-placed to grow more strongly um, over the medium term, certainly compared to other more vulnerable economies, EM economies that I cover. I very much, I very much like um, the, the way in which um, the UAE economy is, is positioned. Excellent. Thank, thank you very much, Simon. And uh, great to see that the, the cycle is turning um, and that we're a, we're a stable market with, um, with diversified growth in the, mean, uh, in the medium term. So moving from the macro to the regulatory, now is a great time to hear from our partner, Andrew Tarbuck, a partner at Altamimi and Company and head of their capital market division, to give us an update on the business environment changes we've been witnessing in the UAE. Many thanks indeed, Miles, and uh, thank you indeed to, to, to Simon for a, a positive outlook. Obviously, uh, wonderful to, to be partnering with HSBC uh, in Drive 2021. I'm going to just run through some of the legal and regulatory changes that have been underpinning a lot of uh, what Simon was talking about. And obviously, rule of law and uh, the law and regulation needs to, needs to actually sit uh, underneath to create uh, an architecture that encourages um, both foreign direct investment and also internal demand. So what I'm going to do is actually use um, there's four particular uh, examples of developments that um, that I think are worthy of talking about. I'm going to fo focus on these four things, which I think are sort of particularly key and stood out for me as a lawyer. So if we look at the commercial companies law amendments, the UA commercial companies law 2015 is really the underpinning corporate law um, that all UAE companies uh, must abide by. So um, interestingly enough, uh, there has been um, one key provision in that commercial companies law, which is article 10, which is around foreign ownership limits. Um, and essentially, historically, um, every company had to have at least 51% local ownership, um, which obviously is, it means that, you know, a lot of foreign investors coming in wanting 100% uh, foreign ownership um, have to find ways to, to, uh, to work around that and get comfortable with the fact that they have to effectively venture up with a 51% with a national. So effectively what they did as of November last year is announced that the foreign ownership limits would be scrapped, which is fantastic news and is something that, that uh, just generally the market, the economy has been waiting for. So it's, it's a real landmark development that the foreign ownership limits will be scrapped, but um, there will be certain industries, certain business activities that are deemed strategic which will still have some form of foreign ownership limit. Um, now, that is effectively what we're expecting in the 1st of June announcement, um, which will be, if you like, a sort of protective list 
where certain foreign ownership limits will still be required. And the sorts of activities we're looking at is, is, is potentially oil and gas, uh, utilities, uh, banking, possibly insurance, um, fisheries, and, and clearly uh, defense. So moving on to Article 151, this is a, another, if you like, uh, protective provision of the previous law, um, whereby 50% of the, the board of directors had to be Emirati nationals. Uh, and also the chairman of the company must be an Emirati national. So in the same vein as the foreign ownership limits, you can see the theme. You know, it's obviously encouraging uh, business uh, for, for, for you know, local Emiratis and protecting the business environment. But obviously that puts a bit of a break sometimes on, on FDI. And this break is very much truly being taken off. The other, what, what looked like a small article that's been repealed in uh, the back of this, of this law um, is Article 329, which is um, another sort of thorn in the side of a lot of foreign companies that were looking to establish uh, a branch in the UAE and operate through a branch process. Um, and that such requirement, which is no longer, is that you had to have a local agent. So either a, a local national um, or a company, um, a UAE company. And obviously with that comes an agency fee, um, which had to be paid. So that should no longer apply effectively after 1st of June, which is again, uh, encourages foreign companies to come in and set up branches and be able to operate uh, pretty much normally uh, onshore. So that's the main developments from a sort of corporate law perspective. So the next topic they're going to talk about is um, free zone company IPOs. There's a whole myriad of free zones within um, the UAE and uh, literally they have not been able to um, IPO on the local markets, which is the Dubai financial market um, and the Abu Dhabi securities market. So um, essentially this is actually again, another land landmark development that came in November, um, whereby the onshore securities regulator, the Security and Commodities Authority, approved um, or changed the law to allow for free zone companies to actually um, list an IPO on the DFM and the ADX. Um, now, this is this is a sort of a, a very big structural development um, and hugely encourages SMEs because uh, you know, there is a considerable SME community that is um, that is live and kicking in the UAE, but probably a, a significant amount of those actually uh, incorporated in the free zones. And the reason for that is so that they could have the 100% foreign ownership um, capability. But they didn't have the opportunity to IPO, and now they do. So essentially, particularly for SMEs, you're now seeing the access to equity capital, which um, is is obviously a, a, a massive development and a, and a good, good opportunity, um, particularly in the SME space. So moving on, um, the NASDAQ Dubai growth market is essentially a, a market that was announced um, by um, Sheikh Hamdan, uh, Crown Prince of, of, of Dubai, um, which is part of NASDAQ Dubai. So it's a, it's a development uh, from NASDAQ Dubai and also the, the financial services regulator in the DIFC, which is uh, the Dubai Financial Services Authority. So essentially the DFSA changed its offering rules. Uh, NASDAQ Dubai also uh, has effectively amended its rules. And what that means is it's allowed a certain amount of flexibility 
for companies wishing to come and list on NASDAQ Dubai. So it's given um, uh, the eligibility requirements have been sort of made more flexible and, and we'll come on to those in just a, sit, just a tick. Essentially, I think the corporate scene in UAE is, is particularly vibrant. You know, we're talking about PE and VC here. One of the things that, that I've seen is a huge uptick in venture capital fund creation and deployment. And obviously, the VCs are looking at deploying into particularly around tech, health tech, education tech, um, and sort of, you know, uh, fintech um, companies, which are looking to start up. And the VC scene has really, really rocketed um, in the last, I would say, 18 months to two years. Um, PE has been a little, little slower, um, but you know, a lot of a lot of um, investors that were going into PE had certainly looked at VC and are prepared to go in at an earlier stage. Private equity here, obviously, um, is particularly important too, and has been historically. Fund creation has been strong. So then, just to wrap it up, really, one of the other elements, which is, you know, again, um, a real. Uh, example of how the UAE has used um, the, the, the crisis to make sure that the population figures are robust and continue to increase and also maintain intellectual capital um, that is built up over the years. I mean, the UAE has certainly been um, have, have had the foresight to realize that you need to maintain that intellectual capital. So the, the ability to have longer term visas and, and residency um, is something that's been addressed um, previously, uh, but the rules have been changed and developed. Um, and the availability of golden visas is, is now sort of wider, much, much wider than it used to be. The idea of golden visas and golden residence gives long term stability and essentially means that you can live in the country without that sponsorship. So the way that it's worked is, is there's four real um, elements uh, or types of persons that this is aimed at. Um, investors, entrepreneurs, professional talents and researchers in various fields of science and knowledge, and an outstanding students with promising scientific capabilities. Finally, there is a retirement visa as well. So um, again, if you're over 55, let's say you finished working, you no longer have a sponsor, you would normally be required to go home. Now, if you fulfill any of these criteria, then effectively you can stay in the country. Um, and it helps to knit the population, knit investment, encourage internal demand, and all those factors that Simon was talking about. Um, it really helps to assist the growth of the economy. And it shows you that the UAE is keen to attract foreign direct investment, attract people to stay and have a long-term commitment to the country. So that is it from me. So over to you, Miles. Great. And, and thank you very much, Andrew. I think, that, again, really useful to get a kind of current and live update on the changes to ownership rules uh, and certain resident, residency status and also kind of how the environment's uh, changing here and, and, and attracting high growth equity back businesses, so thank you. Um, okay, we'll move now to our panel discussion uh, with Dan, Simon, Andrew, and special guest, Greg Clark, HSBC Senior Advisor for Future Cities and New Industries to discuss the sectorial shifts 
wider business opportunities and growth through co connectivity that the UAE is well positioned to capture upon. So with that, um, I'll start with my first question to Dan. Um, the UAE and wider region will soon welcome major global audiences. The Expo is one of the key initiatives in the UAE. How do you see Expo's contribution and legacy on the overall business sentiment? Well, thanks, Miles. Expo 2020 Dubai, I think, will be truly transformative. It will be the largest ever event staged in the Arab world. So if you look at the Expo itself, it's expected to add about 1.5% to the UAE GDP, and it's hoped to create around about 50,000 new jobs. Uh, and that's an EY estimate with a longer term impact of about 120 billion dirhams to the UAE economy over the next sort of 15 years. The time of the event is critical because obviously a number of sectors have been hard hit, including travel and tourism. Uh, but there are also a, a number of stimulus projects, around about 22, um, and as around about 6,500 keys scheduled to bolster the hotel portfolio uh, and growth therein. I think there's also a key focus on legacy, uh, particularly with regard to Dubai South and District 2020, which will be the body that takes over the 20 uh, over the expo site. And we can already see some very exciting issues like scale to Dubai uh, and those offers of two years free tenancy as well as visa rewards. And what's more, I think what's also exciting is that this is a, a, an expo site that will connect sea, land and air with state-of-the-art mobility, helping international business to thrive. So I feel whatever form Expo takes, it will be a key driver putting not just the UAE, but the Arab world on the global stage. Thank you, Dan. And I know it's a huge site at the south of Dubai, and we're all very excited to, 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 get, it, to, to get it started. So, Greg, I'd be interested to know um, your thoughts as well. Well, Miles, it's a very interesting subject, because if you think about it this way, um, countries and whole regions tend to use the device of hosting the world when they want to begin a completely new cycle of development and reforms. One of the effects of hosting the Expo for Dubai, I think, will be increased visibility, but also changed expectation of what Dubai's next cycle will be about. As it were, there's a, a repositioning going on here, aligning Dubai much more closely with, uh, with innovation, uh, with health, with, uh, with uh, um, a human, as it were, uh, uh, evolution more generally, certainly with technology. The second thing is that when you host the world in this way, it tends to be an accelerator of your own growth and change. It's a bit like, you know, you, you set a deadline, you know that the world is coming or the world is viewing and you have to be ready. And this has the effect of increasing governance capability and capacity. It has the effect of making you match fit, as it were, more quickly. And I think that's a very beneficial outcome of all of this. And then thirdly, of course, and particularly in a post-pandemic moment, it has the effect of creating additional patronage that's beyond what the market would usually produce in terms of your logistics, your facilities, your assets. So particularly in this case, uh, airport and airport connectivity, real estate utilization. So there's lots to play for here. And I'm really glad Dubai is, is hosting the World Expo. I think it will have a very significant legacy, not just in terms of infrastructure and land use, but also in terms of perceptions and positioning and in terms of accelerating that new economic pathway that Simon articulated so clearly. 
Thank you, Craig. And you know, really great to hear about the, the Expo Boost and, and particularly how that's going to generate enterprise. Um, so, Andrew, um, you've talked about new initiatives to stimulate business growth and investment. But what next? Um, and how does investment play out for business owners in relation to wealth and domicile? Thanks, Miles. Um, I think, look, it's, it's one of those things that the groundwork has really been put in in Q4 and Q1 and 2 in terms of the sort of legal and regulatory pieces. And I just think that, that we've yet to see um, the, the, the real sort of uptick in FDI. I mean, you know, the figures are already in for last year, which is great. And I think there's, there's a lot more to come. Um, one of the things is, you know, we, we talked about the region as well. Um, it is a competitive environment <laughs> and, you know, I know we're focused on the UAE, but we do have a, a very large neighbor in the Saudi uh, market. Um, so I think the, the, that um, a lot of the stimulus has been, you know, driven out of thought processes, um, but also out of competitive nature with Saudi as well, because we're seeing incredible reform in Saudi Arabia. And I think, you know, how it's going to play out is you'll see Particularly, I mean, I'm 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 very uh, buoyed by the venture capital um, uh, growth, and obviously that means a lot of good things for startups. And those startups, obviously, I mean, the venture capital uh, world is 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 a, it is a numbers game. But I think you know the the direction of travel, particularly around that sort of venture cap and startup space, and the encouragement of SMEs. Uh, that that's very very sort of uh, good portent for the future. Thank you, Andrew. And you know, I think it's really really relevant to be focusing on the venture capital growth and what it means for SMEs in this business. And I, you know, I think we certainly saw some big numbers come in in terms of Series A, Series B investments last year in the region, and a lot of that was in was in the UAE. So so yeah, so exciting to see how that progresses um, over the coming years as well. So thank you. Okay, um, so moving on. Uh, as we know, uh, the UAE's focus on improving its technology and building a sustainable economy is key. So, Greg, how competitive in the UAE? How competitive is the UAE, and what more could we see? Well, it's a very good question, Miles. Every year, I review the 600 or so comparative rankings, ratings, indexes, and benchmarks that position the world's cities vis-a-vis -vis one another and produce an overall kind of competitiveness report. And of course, in the past, both Dubai and Abu Dhabi have been doing very well, scoring strongly on things like foreign direct investment, business climate, global connectivity. They've scored quite well on, you know, attractiveness to expat populations. And of course, recently, they've scored very well on tourism. Um, what's beginning to happen now, though, because of the reforms that Simon and, and Andrew and Dan have been speaking about, is that they're starting to score much more highly on a, on a wider range of measures. So enterprise is one of them. And I think the point that Andrew's just made is very important. Let, let me put it at its most simple. Unless you do the kind of visa reforms that have been described, you miss the opportunity to convert international talent into cross-border entrepreneurship. They're also scoring much more strongly on sustainability. And then lastly, what you can see is that they're all scoring very highly for kind of strategic leadership, governance, investment capability. So the UAE cities 
are doing much better. Now, I want to make one other comment, if I may, Miles, that there's there's often an assumption that competition within the region is somehow zero sum. And I think that in very few cases is that true. Actually, I think the competition within the region is actually fueling innovation. It's fueling, as it were, a race to the top, not a race to the bottom. So it's perfectly feasible, I think, for Riyadh to be doing very well and also for Dubai and Abu Dhabi to do well, just in the same way that other cities in the region are, are, are now uh, succeeding. And so overall, I expect to see this cohort of cities in the Middle East together rising up the competitive rankings at a time when, uh, you know, all the cities of the world are becoming more dynamic. Thank you, Greg. And it's really interesting to hear about how the cities are ranked and how, how we're faring here in the UAE. And certainly this, on the sustainability piece, um, you know, it's, it's a point of dialogue that we have with a number of our clients now on an increasing basis. So uh, looking forward to seeing our cities um, shoot up the scale uh, on, on, on that balance as well. If you had to pinpoint one corridor or one opportunity in sector, what would it be? So, Andrew, uh, if, I, if I go to you on that one. Sure. I would say right now, healthcare. This is certainly a destination, I think, now for health tourism. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the standard of healthcare here and the attraction of talent is superb. So it's sort of traditional healthcare, health tourism, talent retention, but also health tech. So I, I, I just think there's, there's so many opportunities there. Thank you. And, and I'd absolutely agree with that as well. And, you know, we're, we're certainly seeing it in the wider healthcare supply chain as well. Um, and some good, some good business operating in that space here. Um, okay, uh, Greg, I'm interested to know your thoughts, please. Well, it's funny because uh, before Andrew spoke, I was about to say healthcare, <laughs> but um, I think that the one I would pick then is my specialist subject, which is urban tech, sometimes called smart cities, sometimes called intelligent cities. I think that the UAE is on a very fast curve up this urban tech uh, parabola, uh, as it were, and I expect to see them becoming a leader in this space over time. And of course, the greater use of efficient urban systems, the better the healthcare and the sustainability outcomes that we get. Thank you. And I think we've all seen an adoption of this through and through COVID and post COVID. We, we live in our cities in a different way. So some, some real opportunities there. So thank you. Uh, Dan, I'd be grateful for your, uh, your thoughts on, on this as well. I, I, I agree uh, around... Uh, urban transformation as well as healthcare. But I think alongside that, uh, two key areas will be education, uh, both higher education and uh, uh, up to, up to K-12, uh, where I feel that particularly Dubai will continue to act as a, a regional hub for education. Uh, and that's an $11 billion industry across the region uh, with you know, forecast growth of double digit. And then finally, um, you know, to be greedy, we've got to look at the way in which, you know, the, the region can use its natural advantages from a, a solar perspective to be a key player in the future of um, renewables and particularly uh, it, it with regards to green hydrogen. So I think these are all going to be key game changers. OK, well, so thank you, Andrew, Greg, Simon and Dan for your time today. HSBC is dedicated to opening up a world of opportunities for our customers. We have strong desire and ambition to support well-managed, high growth businesses in the UAE who have a strong international outlook. 
Um, we're excited about the opportunities the UAE economic environment brings to businesses and how we can help your business to start your next step. Uh, I hope you have a better understanding of the business opportunities in the UAE and how we can support your growth and expansion now. Thank you and stay safe. This has been a special production of our inspiring progressive business mini-series. There will be more episodes focusing on a number of different topics such as starting your green journey, being cyber resilient and how having a purpose-led mindset could benefit your business. Please listen out for those. Thank you for joining us for HSBC Talks Business. To learn more about anything you heard today, please visit business.hsbc.com.